0: We are community. Hi, my name is Eric, your host of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Byron Brooks, an assistant professor in Loyola University, Chicago's Department of Psychology and an academic associate with the University of Chicago Center for HIV Elimination. With a program of research focusing on increasing the understanding of Black queer people, Dr. Brooks looks for ways to develop culture responsive interventions, mitigating the health inequities, thus bolstering well being among this community. And I took that from your website. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Brooks has also written publications for Journal of Clinical Psychology and Medical Settings, LGBT Health, Sexuality Research and Sociology, and other periodicals. Additionally, he is the director of Rise Lab. The acronym RISE, R-I-S-E, stands for Resilience, Intersectionality, Stigma, and Engagement. With a focus on Black queer people, RISE's approach is rooted in clinical health psychology, positivity, positive psychology, and diversity science. I think Dr. Brooks' credentials are a good indication that he's committed to reaching out and helping others, so I look forward to learning more about his works as well as finding out a little of who he is when he's not making the Black LGBTQ plus world a better place. (laughs) Hi, Byron. You are the technical saver for today. (laughs) We were supposed to record yesterday. Everything looked great, but we just found that today it was on my end that I was not hearing sound. So thank you so much for that.
1: No worries at all. And I know in a world of always doing Zoom, there's something that will always go wrong.
0: (laughs) How are you? How's How's your week? My week has
1: gone well. It's the end of the week. I'm actually winding down my summer break and we'll start back up our semester here in a couple of weeks at the end of August.
0: So you're in Chicago?
1: Yes, I am in Chicago. I've been here for, I think about this, three years now because I moved up here in summer of 19. So I have got to experience the, the harsh winters that folks talk about. I definitely miss the South since that's where I'm originally from.
0: Okay, what part?
1: From South Carolina, I was born and raised. And then I was in Tennessee while I was doing my PhD and then moved up to Chicago to kind of finish my studies up here.
0: You talked about the weather in Chicago, the cold, which I think all of us know about, but do you actually have a summer?
1: Honestly, we do. I think summer is when everybody comes alive. They, they call it summertime shy. I hear a lot of people up here talk about how humid it is or how hot it is. And I'll be like, this is nothing compared to what I remember in the South. But we've had a really humid summer up here that's been kind of reminding me of home. So I have appreciated that.
0: Uh, Okay, so you like the humidity.
1: I do. I do. I I keep my apartment pretty warm. That's why I have a little uh, sweat going on right now, because it's
0: just what I'm used to. (laughs) Okay, well, it's good for the skin. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm assuming it's the moisture in the air that's good. Because I come from Arizona, which is mm. a dry heat. So <laughs> yeah, I've never been to Arizona,
1: but I've been to Las Vegas a couple times. And I just mm. remember being like, what is this? This is a heat that I am not used to that just feels very oppressive in a way that I am not used to.
0: I would agree with all of that. And <laughs> Vegas is exactly the weather that is in Vegas is exactly what's in Arizona. Mm. I assume that being in Stockholm is a difference for you, though, as far as weather. It is. It's relatively mild. I have the window closed so you don't hear the sound outside. But I have family in Maryland. I was actually there for six weeks before I came here. And that kind of humidity just (laughs) knocks me out. (laughs) But I'm not used to it.
1: it. Is something you grow accustomed to um, and maybe one day I'll kind of get away from it a little bit the more I'm up here and I get more into the, the cold weather kind of
0: person. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you've been in Chicago for three years and I, I apologize if I didn't catch that. So you've been at the university for three years.
1: I guess it'd be helpful to give some context on clinical psychology as far as how our programs work. We typically go to a program for somewhere between five to six years. My program that I went to was East Tennessee State University, which is in kind of rural Northeast Tennessee in the mountains between North Carolina and Virginia. The last year of a clinical psychology doctoral program you do was called an internship, which is comparable to medical residency for physicians. So we go through our match process and I ended up matching at the University of Chicago, moved up here in June of 19. I did that. For a year, then we graduate with our doctoral degree, and then we have to do a postdoctoral fellowship, often one to two years, in order for us to acquire additional hours for our licensure to practice independently. And I did that also at the University of Chicago, and then I accepted this position at Loyola in their Department of Psychology, and I've been here since August of 21. Actually, this is, I'm about to go into my second year. So I'm
0: excited about that. Got the first year under my belt. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) I know Loyola Marymount University in LA, are they affiliated with Loyola in Chicago?
1: The Loyola system, although they are affiliated, all of the institutions operate independently. So in fact, I think about my time here. I never really hear them talk about the other Loyola campuses. I hear them talk about the Jesuit Catholic institutions. We mainly kind of stick to ourselves. So I actually have never spoken to anybody from any of those other institutions nor hear them talk about them, actually.
0: Yeah, because I first heard of Loyola when I moved to L.A. I actually lived not too far from there for a few years. The campus is beautiful.
1: I I will say from what I've seen and what I know of, I've, I've really enjoyed the institution and if other Jesuit Catholic institutions are like this, it's a really beautiful place
0: to be at. So as an assistant professor, what are your responsibilities or what does that entail?
1: Yeah, it's kind of, you're you're wearing a lot of different hats. And so I teach two classes, uh, semesters, my obligation. And then I also engage in my research, which occupies probably the majority of my time. And then I also, as far as our positions, you typically have to do some service and that can mm-hmm. be service to the department of psychology, service to the institution, which just means maybe you're serving on a committee that's working on hiring someone or trying to redo some policies. But something I really enjoy is that our institution's big on service to community. And that's kind of where I bring in kind of wanting to provide free mental health care to Black LGBTQ folks. So I was able to continue my relationship with the University of Chicago We actually have a clinic where we provide free counseling, essentially, to Black queer folks on the south side of Chicago. That probably brings me the most joy, and we've been able to build that up. We have several community partners that we pay that provide that therapy for free, and I also have students who are training. You know, it's not a lot of us doing this work, so we need more people to be able to work in a culturally sensitive and affirming way with community. So I've been blessed to be able to bring on students. I have two every year now that come through this training with me and as part of their their clinical rotation, where they get to receive all this education on working with Black folks, working with uh, LGBTQ folks, working at that intersection. What does that look like and navigating all these other you know, forms of systematic oppression that we deal with? and How mm-hmm. does that manifest in the therapy room? So I know I just kind of gave a lot there, but that's kind of what my work looks like. It's a mix between teaching, research and service. And my service is mainly kind of giving back to community in that way.
0: I definitely felt that when, yeah, it's like really great to hear that you are on the front lines helping with mental health with the Black LGBT community. Yeah. Like the second person that I've talked to around that and also just around representation of the importance of, yeah, we are part of this community generally speaking, but there is that component of race that is something that only somebody who has the education and the experience can help someone else with. And this is just me saying that. I don't know if that's true or not.
1: (laughs) As much as I love the work that I do and I appreciate my training, I think psychology is a field as far as the practice of psychology. I think we are not where we should be as far as working with any kind of marginalized group, because a lot of the work that has been established, this was made by old cis heterosexual white men back Mm -hmm. in the 1800s and has been tested on that population continuously. So I'm really excited to see, you know, scholars like myself, and then you think even going back, previous Black scholars who are trying to do this work and really think about how we're addressing these intersections in our work.
0: So, is your research was that started before or after you accepted this position?
1: My program of research was going before I accepted this position because we do research continuously. But I definitely had an evolution of research uh, for me because when I started school, I was really focusing on I was focusing on folks with chronic medical illnesses and how do kind of strengths are positive psychological factors, maybe such as being able to, you know, reframe things and have a silver lining or having gratitude or being able to treat ourselves with kindness or self-compassion, how that impacted kind of the relationship between their medical condition and their mental health. And my program of research really evolved after seeing, I think it was a post or a study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that stated that If current HIV rates persist, one in every two Black gay and bisexual men will be diagnosed with HIV over the course of their lifetimes. And I remember in that moment when I read that, I was like, I'm sitting here doing this work. I'm having this knowledge and we know that mental health plays a huge role in that. And I felt really compelled to kind of shift my work at that point. And this was halfway through my program. I said, I'm going to focus on LGBTQ folks, I'm going to focus on Black folks. I want to look at how these systems of oppression, racism, heterosexism, misogyny, how all of these things, plus more, impact the health and well-being of us. But I think the difference I take in my work is that I really like to look at the positive aspect of, of life because a lot of the work that I see, and I get so frustrated when I read these publications and various things on community that are often from white scholars who only go to, well, everything's bad. Everything's bad. I'm like, I'm a black gay man. Not everything's bad. I love where I'm at in my position in life. And I think there's so many things that we don't study because we're only focused on often HIV, sexual health, or the bad stuff that comes with dealing with stigma and oppression as opposed to what are the positive aspects of life. So really just a trajectory of how my research changed. But when I came into this position, I knew that I was going to be in a place where I could direct my research and not have to go through an academic advisor or go through these other people. And I could set the tone and really say what I wanted to focus on. And
0: that's really important to me. And just for me as a layperson coming to you for guidance, it's like just the fact of having a Black psychologist, the power of that, mm. I would believe that could change the perception of myself. And then I would guess the perceptions of, you know, any of your your clients that you have of themselves.
1: (laughs) That's one of my favorite things of kind of working in community because we don't have a lot of models and people in these positions doing this. And I'm like, whatever we can do, open the door and keep it open and keep people coming through. Because it's the things I will often hear are, there's a sense of trust at the beginning. And it's not as much as that I have to build it up. It's just, okay, we look alike, we have similar identities. There is an assumption that we do have similar experiences because of those identities, which we know is not always true. But we talk about that and say, you know, I'm a black gay man who was raised in South Carolina and was raised Southern Baptist. You know, your experience of being raised on the South side of Chicago as a black queer person is gonna be completely different than mine. But we can talk about those differences. And I think that's really where the work is and understanding and exploring how those differences shape that experience of their life, as well as kind of what they're coming to therapy for. This is one of my favorite things to be in this position and be able to be a a healer in some type of way that really helps people at this really, I think, sensitive spot in their life. Everybody should be doing it. I'm just a big advocate of it.
0: I'll echo that. I've been (laughs) to a therapist a few times.
1: I stay in one because it's it's just nice to have that objective, I should say neutral kind of unbiased party that can be like, girl, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, so it is helpful just to have, have that ability to, to have that frame and that scope and that additional
0: perspective. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I found one of your publications, February 2021, the title was anticipated to enacted structural stigma against sexual and gender minorities following the 2016 presidential election. And you spoke on the negative impact on the mental health and physical health of sexual and uh, gender minorities. But you mentioned structural stigma, and I've never heard that term before. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I didn't know you were going to go into the articles. Uh, (laughs) So, You know, when we typically think about stigma, we're talking about this umbrella term that really captures oppression, discrimination, really being treated differently because of some aspect of who you are, often being treated poorly. And we think about stigma in particular on several different levels. We think about it on the internalized level. So I can hold internalized stigma where I think that being Black is a problem that internalized racism I can hold that internalized homophobia, where I think being a gay person is problematic. And that brings up a lot of, a lot of negative emotions that can kind of facilitate the development of some type of like depression or anxiety. Then we think the next level up is interpersonal stigma, which is the stigma that occurs between you and I. So you treat me differently because of this aspect of my identity. And then you go up a little bit more and then we start talking about this really understudied but starting to become more studied area of structural stigma and this is the kind of cumulative effect of you think about historical oppression you think about policies of institutions and how all of these kind of come together to create this experience for folks that often trickles down into the treating people differently in a one-to-one fashion or even their thoughts about themselves When I was talking about structural stigma in that paper, we were actually talking about this anticipation of stigma, which, based on the research that we have, actually causes a lot more kind of mental and emotional and physiological difficulties more than actually experiencing the stigma itself. So, me anticipating that I'm going to walk in a room and I'm going to be the only Black person there, or me anticipating that when I got to go home for Thanksgiving, oh, my family's going to say some some stuff about gay people or trans folks that's really going to make me mad, but set me off. Just even that anticipation of walking into that is is enough to get, you know, our anxiety, get our emotions going around that. So I was exploring there, kind of anticipated structural stigma in response to Donald Trump being elected as president, because we saw a lot of rhetoric there, at least in the states here, of him and a lot of the people he was talking about putting into cabinet positions talking about you know how they're going to take away said rights are just even threatening that and in that study we just heard a lot of folks say I'm really worried about losing healthcare access because I am a trans or gender non-conforming or gender diverse. I'm worried about my marriage being nullified because of something, which we're seeing now with some of the comments uh, with Judge Clarence Thompson, kind of threatening to take that back after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I did a follow-up study to that where we looked at how that anticipated stigma, how that impacted mental health, and we saw that it impacts the resources that we have.
0: It reinforces that it's all connected. We live in a very sociopolitical
1: space that everything is interconnected, like you said. And just because it may not impact your life doesn't mean it's not impacting the lives of others. And I just really try to ensure that people keep that in the forefront of their mind.
0: With you being in the psychological community and also bringing up discussions around the Black LGBT community, what have been your perceptions of those outside of the Black LGBTQ plus community?
1: I think that this is a unique intersection that comes along with If you're Black, they're already coming with some notion of what that means. If you're a Black man, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean you're aggressive? Am I going to interpret the things that you're doing and saying when you disagree with me as being hostile? When you add the LGBTQ aspect on it, it's a unique experience where I think people will then start to put some of the labels and misconceptions that we saw during the HIV AIDS epidemic, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, of, oh, if you're a Black gay man, that must mean you're diseased, that must mean you're the sexual deviant, that you're always doing X, Y, Z. But I think there's this other part of, oh, because you are a Black queer man, oh, that must mean you're more docile and you're not really this angry person and you're more Mm -hmm. uh, palatable for whiteness, I guess, is a way to think about it. And just kind of thinking about even kind of within the LGBTQ community, we always are thinking about the actual racism that is present, um, whether that's sexual racism, I'm reaching out to you. I'm a white man and I see you on an app and I want to say, oh, tell me about what you're going to do with me with that, that big black dick or, you know, these types of things. There's so much there. But I often, thinking back to me and what I hear when I do my studies and when I do engaged in clinical work, the folks I work with aren't really talking about that. They're talking about the blessing that it is to be at this juncture. I asked a few folks in a study I published, what do you love about being a black, a same gender loving man? This was only on black, sexual minority men. And (laughs) just to hear the themes, somebody said, you know, we're just magic. I love this ability that we can kind of be flexible in who we are and, you know, in the morning I can be this person, in the the night I can be this person, I change with the seasons or because of my identity, I have this unique ability to help others and serve as kind of a model for other Black queer folks, but also to serve as a model is like, I can do a lot of good in this world and like this increased compassion. So I want to focus on how we can facilitate the goodness that comes
0: out of us. Very much so. Yeah, which I think ties into, I wanted to ask you, because you're out Black gay Mm -hmm. professional professor, and how that's impacting positively within academia, and then also when you're interacting with the public.
1: Hmm. I think in academia, the gay part of me is very accepted. Academia, I think, has lots of queer, lots of gender diverse folks in it. It has been for a long time because it's been kind of a safe haven in some ways. But when I think about the response to being a Black queer person, the racism is the one that always comes to the top of mind for me. I can even think about the institutions I've been at previously. That's been, I think, the most difficult challenge is navigating those experiences. But when I talk to other Black queer folks that are in academia doing research, we're always like trying to lift each other up, loving on each other. What can we do to support each other? There is an experience that I think that white queer academics and white academics don't get is often I'm being questioned about why I'm doing the work that I'm doing, as opposed to folks who are doing just like general things. Like maybe they just study depression in general. Maybe they just study something that we've studied for forever and a whole bunch of white people for all the time but no one's questioning why are you doing that but when it comes to people who do work that really means something to them it was like oh you're biased if you're compassionate about it or you can't talk about this stuff because you aren't looking at this from a neutral frame or I just don't understand why you're you're looking at this I think being a black out queer person in academia it has this benefits, but also has limitations. And I think it comes with kind of navigating the racist systems that we're a part of, but also questioning why you're doing what you're doing and having to justify that.
0: It's interesting that your expertise could be called into question because I've tried to read studies about specifically Black queer men, and I knew very quickly into reading it. I was like, I don't think this was written by a Black person. (laughs) The assumption that because they're not thinking about themselves as a race, that they can't be biased is interesting. That's why we should be writing,
1: and I think any form of writing, not just academic, but also in any other form, I think we should always be saying who we are, what our identities are. When I'm reading this thing about Black LGBTQ something, I know the vantage point that this researcher came from, or that this person who wrote this article for the New York Times is coming from. So I can put it in context and say, oh, I I might want to dismiss some of these kind of things that this person's saying because there may be some veiled discrimination or kind of bias, I should say, put in here how they've written this and framed this.
0: But I like that you make a conscious effort to stay focused on positivity. And I like to, I was on your homepage of your website, uh, Byron, I'm just saying this for the audience, byrondbrooks.com. But you reference a song lyric, Develop a Negative into a Positive Picture. Uh, first of all, what song is that from?
1: That is from Lauren Hills, Everything is Everything. That was from her debut album. I was 10 when that came out. The Miseducation of Lauren Hills, hands down, one of my favorite albums. But I remember hearing that line and just feeling so like, this makes sense. I love this. And I think it's something that's definitely carried with me throughout my life because I think about that point in my life, my parents were in the process of like separating, moving towards divorce. I'm trying to grapple with this notion of recognizing that I know I'm not straight. Um, I think just kind of having that reframe there was really helpful for me. And that would say that is something that I've written about in every essay that I've applied to any school with, I've started it off there, because I want them to know who I am when I'm walking in the door, and I think that is how I approach my work, that's how I approach my clinical work, of thinking, what are the strengths that are there, and how am I looking at this situation? Mm. There are some positives there, and it definitely, obviously, is informed what I'm doing, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that, and it helps me to stay focused, even with talking to you now, like, focus on the positive. That is going to be something that's going to stay with me because I've been asked for this particular platform. Okay, I'll, I'll just share an experience quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I've gotten suggestions most often from non Black people about people to profile, and I notice it's mm-hmm. usually connected to entertainment, mm-hmm. which that's not wrong. However, it helps me to see or to confirm in a lot of ways that. A lot of these people are unable to see us as a psychologist, as a professor.
1: It's these frames and these scopes and these perspectives positions that they believe that we should be in. As a child, you know, I think everybody envisions, oh, popularity and fame and wanting that. And I think that is very normative for folks to want that desire, but I think that's a form of bias there when we're saying we only want to see these folks in these positions and I can't envision you in another role, in another space. I've been directly questioned, like, are you the professor? It's because I'm not the vision of what they think about when they think about a professor. I agree that that makes sense of the way that people look at us is just another way of how they're expressing their potential bias.
0: When did you become aware that you wanted to, or that you had a desire to study psychology and to make that your profession? It was definitely later.
1: I went to school with the intentions of being a biochemist, And the reason I said that is because in high school I was like, I like biology, I like chemistry, let's put them together. That was a mistake. I always said I wanted to work on like designing medicines, and that was a thing. And I got to college, started taking those classes and everything along with that. And I was like, oh, this ain't me. I'm struggling in these. I was away from home, and this is the first time that I had some freedom. So I wasn't even really going to my classes, and I was kind of goofing off and. Eventually, I got put on academic probation and then subsequently suspended from my university. And mm-hmm. I had to reapply to get back in. And at that point, I said, I need to find what works for me. And I was just kind of taking courses in other places and found sociology and really found that, that stuck out to me, felt like it resonated with me, that acknowledging systems and acknowledging all these historical aspects and how that manifests in kind of daily life and I had a professor who was a substance abuse counselor. I really enjoyed his course and was like, I think this is where I wanna kind of maybe look into this field. At the time I was working full-time at a bar. So it just Mm -hmm. felt like that made sense of like, okay, you work with people who often are, you know, probably struggling with some substance misuse. So I decided at that point to go into counseling I was going to seek a degree so I could be a substance abuse counselor. And I got to my master's program. I think it was like my first year was like, I don't think I want to do this. It was specifically substance abuse counseling. And then I had a lecturer say, behavior and disease go together. That really resonated with me. And I was like, okay, what does this mean? And that made me make a pivot to thinking about primary care psychology. So psychologists operating and functioning when you go to your general practitioner, because, you know, you're going to talk to your general practitioner about not only kind of what's going on with you physically, but emotionally, mentally, socially. So I I started thinking about that. I started getting kind of involved in research and I was like, I don't think I want to stop at a master's degree. I want to continue my education and pursue a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. So that's when that really came up. I was in my mid-twenties at that point, and that was not in the cars before then. It was very much like, you're going to do substance abuse counseling, and this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But then people say things, and they ring in your ears and throughout your head, and then next thing you know, you're, you're doing this. And I'm glad I listened to that.
0: Mm-hmm. I definitely sense a compassion with you, which I would think would be helpful in your line of work. But it's interesting to hear your career trajectory. And also to be reminded that we can change, nothing's set in stone. And then hearing you talking about academic probation, I was like, oh, that doesn't fit the image I have of him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The preconceived notion of what we think, you know, someone who has a, a doctoral degree has gone through, like I messed up and I fully acknowledge that. But those moments there taught me the most important things I've learned in my life of like education is so transformative and this is something that I truly value and I love the pursuit of knowledge. And then how can I take that knowledge and do something with it to make things or make something better? I wouldn't change what happened to me. It's made me who I am and definitely informed my values that I try to live by.
0: This is me not being a therapist, but I would guess it would help with being more compassionate.
1: It helps with bringing that empathy in the room when someone's talking about navigating some academic challenges, or someone's talking about navigating their mama or their grandma said this about gay people, but they don't know that they're gay yet, or navigating challenges with like financial insecurity. I think those experiences have helped. And it's important for me to always keep in touch with those experiences. Even though I'm getting further away, it's important for me to kind of check back in and be like, you know, look where you came from, check it when you're Getting on your
0: How horse here or something like that. Sounds like the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that around 10, you knew you weren't like little boys. Um, when did you become aware of what that meant as far as mm-hmm. sexual orientation?
1: As a child, I was always a very quiet, coy, shy person. Like I was definitely always up under my mama. When we went to like some family gathering, I didn't want to play with my cousins. I remember hearing the comments that like family members would say around that of like, mm, you need to get him out there. Why is he so sensitive? Why is he always up under you? Why is he always like this? So I, I didn't know it at the time, but the messages that were being communicated was like, "Ooh, he's different. What's going on here? I learned that there was a problem with that. And then as I started getting older and definitely in middle school, you know, all the boys over we here talking about liking girls. And I'm like, mm, that, that's not resonating with me. Mm-hmm. I really think this guy is attracted to that I saw at school. And like feeling some things, but not knowing how to navigate that. But knowing that society didn't value that and it was looked down upon. I don't know how it was communicated, but it was there. I can definitely think about various moments and explicit comments from family, hearing them talk about other family members who were gay or lesbian. And one that stands out to me is hearing a family member saying, you know, if that was my son, I would take him to the doctor and try to get him fixed. I think I was probably 11, 12 at that moment and just being like, oh, this isn't safe. I can't, you know, acknowledge this part of me. I think it brought up a lot of feelings of shame and trying to navigate that. I think it took until I was 23 to really sit with and be able to kind of say like, you know, this is who I am. I can't hide this. I can't live my life in a way that they want me to. So there was a period in my life where I was celibate for about five years during my twenties, just because I was like, I have to figure me out before I'm
0: trying to engage with other people. To could check just about everything you shared. <laughs> <laughs> you were in a state of being healthy when you just said that Um, You gave yourself time to figure out what this all is.
1: Yeah. um, It was my trying to move towards health and and healing. I just got to the point where like, this isn't going to work. I need to figure me out. And in a way for me to do that is I I shut off the opportunity for even those questions to come up around dating, romantic life. So whenever I would go home, And family would ask, oh, you don't have a girlfriend? Oh, when you have a girlfriend? I use the stock answer that I think a lot of black queer folks use of like, I'm focusing on school. Um, You know, I'm just really just trying to get through school. You know, I'm trying to get this degree. You know, I'm trying to go get my master's and uh, all this. And I remember at 23, I was like, I can't live my life how others want me to, because then it's not a life worth me living. And shortly after I got into my master's program, I decided, like, if I'm gonna try to be a therapist, I need to be on the other side of it too. And I started seeking a therapist and uh, seeing a therapist. I walked into therapy the first day, and I was like, I want to be able to tell my family who I am and live life like this. And <laughs> the therapist was like, Are you are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, No, this is this is my goal. This is what I want to do. And I'm proud that I did that to help me work through my stuff at that time in order to be open and be honest about who I am and not feel like I can't bring a partner home during the holidays, not feel like I have to sit back and not say anything when somebody says something about, oh, he's got a little sugar in his tank. That was just very important for me to live the life that I wanted to live and not the life that others wanted me to live.
0: I always have, I don't feel like I was ever in the closet. (laughs) Mm. Cause I was unwilling to, for many years to just look at it, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, focusing on school and other people, yeah. you know, how are you doing? <laughs>
1: yeah. I've heard this so much in my research. It's interesting to hear the things that we often say. I've heard friends say, I've heard family members who were in community say, I've heard people in my studies say of this notion of like, I have to be safe and make it through, and that that means I have to conceal this as best as I can, these are definitely things I've heard of how we'll put some type of mask up or barrier up so we can kind of just like lodge it off and not have to think about it.
0: You've been in Chicago now for three years. I know a little bit about like the music, you know, house music, which I love, and a few other aspects that are specifically came from or influenced by the Black LGBTQ community. but. In your time there, have you become aware in other ways that the community influences the city of Chicago, either in politics or in other arenas? Hmm.
1: that's a great question. Um, I feel like there's an asterisk with my experience here because I think the footnote would say, Byron got to Chicago in summer 2019, and then the pandemic happened. (laughs) So when I moved here, I was doing our version of residency. And so I'm doing 50, 60 hours a week of patient care. And I'm not really going out doing much because I also didn't have a lot of money because they don't pay us much in that role. But when the pandemic hit, I was like, I really missed out on what these experiences look like. And it's only until recently that I've really been able to get out and see, engage with the Black queer community really face-to-face because a lot of things have been virtual, online and all these types of things. So it's hard for me to answer that question right now to think about the influence of the city. And I don't want to give a wrong answer. And then somebody will be like, what what,
0: what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) We'll have to do a year in review then. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. With the uh, increase of Black citizens within and outside of the LGBT community being more open about mental health, Mm -hmm. where do you see the next step going or what is the next step?
1: I think there are multiple things that have to happen, especially as we are feeling more comfortable being open about who we are. And from a mental health perspective, there has to be more clinicians that look like us, that are us in these roles. And then there also has to be this other part of like, we have to train people who aren't us how to work with us too. The field itself has to do better with bringing folks in, getting them through and giving them the adequate training. To work with folks. I also think there needs to be a great deal of work of thinking about the way we deliver interventions. I don't think I need to always sit in a room one-on-one with somebody to do therapy. I don't have to run a psychotherapy group. I think we can be advocates and get messaging out that is helpful for community in a lot of different ways. So if that means us going to events and giving a talk about, hey, This is what depression is. This is what it looks like. You may be thinking depression looks like you were just in your bed, don't want to get up all the time. And like depression looks in a lot of different ways you know, you being really irritable with everybody and also being upset and, you know, not want to be social. This could be potential depressive symptoms too. So I think Mm -hmm. providing education about what mental health is, reducing the stigma around it, will be the way that I think we should be talking about this in community. And I don't have to do a year's therapy with somebody to do that. I think we can do it a lot of different ways and create a lot of different platforms. One thing that I really love that one of my incoming students, uh, PhD students does, is he has been on podcasts and he's actually has been working on a podcast where they talk about Black mental health issues. And I'm like, we can do these things to get this message out in different ways. And as far as people in community, I think we need to be okay with acknowledging that we're not okay, seeking the assistance and the help that we need. So if that means activating your social support system, if that means, you know, seeking some referrals out for some therapists and trying it out, the first one may not be the one for you. and That's fine. I would encourage people to lean into that as opposed to saying, I can't do that because that's why people stop. Because there are benefits there for all of us and that we can tap into.
0: I you know, always say I can always find my answers and I've been finding it more from younger people with this public discourse around racism through these public murders in the last few years. But one of the things that's helped me to change within my own inner dialogue is that racism is trauma. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of it as trauma. I think because of that thing, uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Instead of saying it's trauma, which means it's affecting me every time it happens.
1: And it is, and this is the part that I always scratch my head when I'm talking to folks that say, "You work with black people, you work with LGBTQ people, and you know how to think about these cultural aspects." And I'm like, "You do too. You're just not stretching your thoughts enough because we know that the way that oppression and discrimination impacts us is the same way that trauma impacts us. You see the same thing around being hyper vigilant. You see the same thing about being wanting to avoid spaces. You see." This kind of activation of our bodily functions, whether it's our nervous system, whether there's you know, negative emotional states, mental negative thoughts that come up. It is trauma. We don't treat it as such. I love that people are starting to think like, I'm not going to walk into these traumatic situations where you were literally killing me by you know, saying XYZ or assuming that because I'm the strong Black woman, if we use that kind of trope that I can bear all this load and I can do all these types of things. it's like, I can be vulnerable too. And I'm hurting because of being in oppressive systems that are not designed for us, that are not for us, and that truly don't want us there, even though they say they do.
0: Well, (laughs) I have to sit with that for a second. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about your other position at the University of Chicago for HIV uh, elimination. That's actually where the, the mental health clinic that we have
1: is house. And that started when I moved to Chicago for my internship. I said when I got here, because I was in rural Tennessee, I worked with one black gay person while I was there because it was very, very white. And I said, I want to work with people who look like me, who are me. They allowed me to make this connection with the center that is affiliated with the university's infectious disease clinic, but it's off the campus at University of Chicago, it's off campus. Our center focuses on HIV prevention and elimination, hopefully by 2040 here in Chicago. So we work explicitly with Black LGBTQ folks. And while we have folks who are doing research there, we have folks who are providing resources as far as housing or getting assistance with housing, getting assistance with food, HIV testing, uh, mental health now, and community programming. So I'm there once or twice a week, and my students are there. And that's kind of my affiliation with them is that that's where our clinic is housed. It's nice to be in a Black queer space because we hire folks from community, the folks that we have on staff and some of the academics there, and some of the researchers and some of the support staff are Black queer folks. So it's just nice to be in a space where it feels like home often to be there. We can lament about all the bad stuff but we can have these moments of joy. And I think those are the beautiful things about being there.
0: I've heard HIV prevention. I've never heard elimination. Well, I think we have to think about it as such. We
1: have the methods and means to really provide primary care of our primary prevention of, you know, limiting the amount of folks who are diagnosed with HIV. We have the things to get at folks who are at high risk and help them navigate that. We also have the things to really increase quality of life and extend life for folks who are living with HIV. We can eliminate it. It's just we have to do a lot more things to get things going in order to, to really, truly get rid of HIV. I'm not trying to say it like that, but we, we can. We have those means.
0: You're also the director of RISE Lab. Exactly what is that?
1: Most professors have a research lab. That's just the name of my research lab, where I have my undergraduate and graduate students who work with me on the projects that we're working on. The thing that you want to do, especially for the younger professors that you want to have like a catchy name. I've seen people talk about these acronyms that don't make sense. And I want it to be very thoughtful with mine and acknowledge what my lab is about with the resilience of focusing on the positive intersectionality of focusing on these interlocking identities and how systems of oppression impact them. And then engagement and having that community engagement. That's my lab. And we focus on, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast. On identity development among Black queer folks, we want to talk about the connection between identity and health, specifically mental health. We talk about or explore positive psychological strengths among community and how can we bolster that. And a study that I'm launching that I've actually launched last week that I'm really, really excited about is we're looking at the sexual identity disclosure process among Black queer men in particular. And we're interviewing a Black queer man and then somebody in their family that has known them before, during, and after. And we really want to understand the relationships, how the relationships changed, made this family member more tolerant, I'll use that language for now, or maybe make them be more hostile towards this person. And we want to start thinking about after we do all these interviews, can we start building family-based interventions to help navigate this process? Because I don't know what your experience was like, but for me, I know that anticipated stigma, going back to that, of even having that dialogue with my parents. I was ready for everything to be thrown at me, which every Bible verse, every possible thing was thrown at me. I was ready for kind of a drag down fight. It was bad. I wish that we had things in place to help us as a community navigate this because we ain't going nowhere and I hope we don't have to go anywhere and I hope we don't have to conceal who we are just to make it through those early years of life, just so we can get to our twenties our and our thirties and be like, okay, I'm out of the house. I can be me. That's kind of our big project of working on right now.
0: The word that came to mind was beautiful. I know the people that I've been able to share with when they've tried to approach me in a usually more of a religious aspect of it Mm -hmm. is that I think you disconnect from the reality that we're people and we have feelings. And when you say these things, it is affecting me. (laughs) I know how you're holding that Bible, how you feel, but you don't think about my emotional well-being. At that point, you're the other. We are the other and it makes it feel
1: more comfortable and easier to treat me as though I'm less than and as if I don't matter based upon this identity is disheartening to me. And I really want to think about what we can do to help people at all ages navigate this experience with family because I I see it across, you know, the age continuum. It makes me sad when I hear someone who is in their 50s or 60s talk about they can't Talk about their friend that then they can't bring them home, or when they are in their twenties and they're like, you know, I'm gonna get kicked out of the house, and my grandma is gonna hate me forever. Underlying all of these these religions is really unconditional love. I definitely want to think about how we can help us navigate through
0: these experiences better. I didn't know what to expect from this interview, but I feel like I'm in therapy right now. Also, <laughs> this is a free consultation, but thank you. To close out, you mentioned the song, the Lauryn Hill Lyric, but what's one other way that you yourself remain focused and positive and centered as a Black gay professional? Wow.
1: I think doing my internal work, doing my own work, and what I mean by that is being able to acknowledge that I can be wrong and being humble. I think also acknowledging because of my experiences in growing up what are my emotional vulnerable points and really trying to actively work on my health not just physical health but my mental and emotional health and i think i do that by going to my therapist talking about this with friends talking with family but i really think the biggest threat to us as a people is not only kind of racism but kind of the internalized shame that we hold. As black queer folks especially from so many different areas so i really think about how can i counteract that and do my own work so that's not bubbling up all the time and when it does bubble up, I can go like i see you there i'm not going to deal with you because i i know this is because of that that's how i kind of maintain my mental health and kind of where i'm at as a black gay professional was like finding family finding friends finding community and doing my own internal work
0: Thank you for sharing that.
1: (laughs) Thank you for, for this wonderful opportunity to talk about all this. I feel like this is also kind of therapeutic on the other side, just to sit in a position and just chat about your experiences. We don't do it far enough. I appreciate you creating this platform and just hearing some of your previous episodes with your guests. I appreciate the focus on the global aspect, especially. It really helps with kind of being able to understand and identify the intersectional experiences of everybody in community across the world.
0: I found you on social media, but do you interact on social media? And if so, would you share where we can find you? Yeah.
1: Best place to find me would be Twitter. My handle is at doc Black, gay, and then D-O-C. You can Google me, Byron D. Brooks, PhD, that should be able to find me. And that'll take you to my personal site that also has my email address and other contact information. So yeah, if you're interested in being a part of your study or just wanting to chat, I'm happy to, to talk. I love having conversation. I'll make sure
0: to share that when this uploads too. Thank you
1: so much, Eric.
0: Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe share with your friends too you can also follow us on instagram at our black gay diaspora and on twitter at blk gay diaspora until next time